Around Christmas time, have you ever received a truly glorious gift? Now, the word glorious is something that is as far from like a lame, meh, mid, mediocre gift that you can imagine. If there's some spectrum of like a a gift that you just kind of hope the receipt is inside so you can quickly return it and pass those like nice, necessary gifts, but nothing special. No, glorious is something that makes you say, what? What? Are, are you serious? That Why? <laughs> you kind of emotionally gets stuck in your heart. That, that's how you know a gift is truly glorious. As you think back on all your Christmas, have you ever gotten a gift like that? Yeah, I was thinking about glory and gifts, and I decided to help us out with this concept to purchase a brand new invention that has never before been seen by human eyes. I have it with me here today. Just arrived in the mail. It uses the latest in AI technology, facial recognition software, and decibel reading. It is called, are you ready for it? The Glory-O-Meter, aka the Gloriometer. It has this incredible, this is like breaking tech, by the way. It just kind of reads the vibe in the room and, and determines how glorious a gift Oh, there's just a handle back here that I can move back and forth, right? So what I want to do is talk about some Christmas gifts that you might gift, and, and I need your participation for this part of the message. So I need you to respond how glorious these gifts are. If you hear it and you think, meh, no, I, I won't want that under the tree, I want you to say loudly from the diaphragm, meh. And if it's okay, like, yeah, I suppose I needed that, thanks for getting that, but it's not anything really special, I want you to shout, okay. But if it's something... Like, yes, please, Lord. I want that for this Christmas. I want you to get the eyebrows up into your forehead and say, wow. Okay, you ready for the gifts? All right, let's imagine it's Christmas. You've got that first present from under the tree. It's got your name on it. There's your, your parents or your significant other or your closest friends. And you unwrap the gift and inside, you ready to vote? Inside is a pair of brand new warm Christmas socks. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, the older I get and the colder I get, the, the more I start to realize socks are a pretty good gift. So yeah, I, I suppose maybe here. Um, all right, let's imagine you unwrap that same gift with your name on it and inside is the latest edition of Call of Duty. Wow, yes. I, I, I have some young men in the room who are like, yes, that is all I want for Christmas is a first-person shooter game in Jesus' name. <laughs> all, right. all right, how about if you unwrap the gift and inside were four tickets to a Green Bay Packer game? You know, this season, I don't know. We used to be green, and now we're kind of gold, right? Things are changing around here in northeastern Wisconsin. All right, what if it wasn't Packer tickets? What if it was two front row tickets to see Taylor Swift? Oh, my goodness, where the Swift, my daughter in the first service was like, oh, my goodness, please give me Taylor Swift tickets. What if it was a free, all-inclusive package of somewhere warm and sunny and sandy? Can we all agree? Yes, yes. If you're watching at home, we're recording this sermon in Wisconsin, so all of us during the winter time can't wait. Yeah, yeah. I think all of us, when we get together with family and friends, I mean, we don't want to buy something just for someone to return it and not like it. And I suppose there's some token gifts you, you got to get because they're necessary and you need it. But all of us during the Christmas season want to get into the wow zone. Right? We are looking for, aching, hoping to both give and get gifts that are truly glorious. Not to rain on your gift-giving experience. Do you know the problem with the gifts that we exchange? The problem is that even if you find the perfect gift, even if you manage to blow someone's mind with a gift that you have given to them, 
My experience is that the glory of the gifts we exchange kind of fades. What's wow on Christmas morning, give it a little bit of time, the wow kind of wears off. This happened a couple years ago to my family. I kind of splurged and uh, decided to buy my daughters a brand new big kind of family gift, a brand new Nintendo Switch gaming system. It's going to revolutionize the Novotny house. I bought Mario Kart. I bought FIFA soccer. I bought all the latest Mario, Luigi games. And when the girls opened, well, I actually took a picture when they were opening the gift. Let me show it to you. That was where they said, what? <laughs> they were stunned. They, they, they don't say we were so excited. We, we plugged the thing in. We put in the games. We're racing each other on Christmas Day. And then, by week two, we didn't play quite as much. And by month two, we kind of forgot that the whole thing was down there. We started games on that first day that to this day, years later, we still haven't finished. It was so glorious in the moment, but the glory, it started to fade. Now, I'm not telling you that just to make Christmas super depressing for you this year. Uh, I'm saying this because if there's one thing as a pastor that I I don't want to happen to you this holiday season is that the glory of the Christmas story starts to fade. I'm not sure of your church experience or how often you've been around places like this during the holiday season, but, but the longer you're a church-going, Jesus-following kind of person, maybe the faster we lose the, the wow and the what and the serious reaction to Jesus. We've heard the stories. We've seen that, yeah, the virgin was with child and gave birth to a son. The the Savior has come to the world. We we just get so used to the story that we forget that the people who first saw Jesus and witnessed who he was and what he said, no one said meh when it came to the Messiah. And few people were on the fence when it came to Jesus. He provoked, whoa. What? What? Did, Did you... And today my goal in this message is to get you in the glory zone with Jesus, the Son of God. Uh, My hope is to give you this gift if you're kind of new around here or maybe re-wrap and re-gift to you these same old stories to think like there there is no one who has been, is, or will be quite like Jesus. And if you know him, if you trust him, if you follow him, this Christmas season you have a thousand reasons to say, wow, wow. I am so blessed. So today, I want to go back to one of Jesus' closest friends. He was a guy named John who wrote one of the four biographies of Jesus, the Gospel of John. In the very first chapter, his introduction, John says this about Jesus. He said, The Word, that was a nickname for Jesus, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his, say this word with me, glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Now, the shocking thing about these words is not that John was wowed with Jesus, it's when he was wowed with Jesus. Uh, Jesus finished his ministry about 30 AD, but John didn't write his gospel until the 90s AD. So 60 years had passed, and yet when John sat down to write, he said, We saw his glory. Jesus, we couldn't process who he was and what he said and what he did. And, and today I want to try to get you a little bit closer to where John's heart was. 
I want to give you a crash course on Jesus Christ. I want to share five truly glorious things about Jesus. For some of you, this will be brand new. For some of it, some of you, you've heard this before, but I want you to see it with fresh eyes today. Five things that will make Jesus the Son of God. Wow. The most amazing, glorious person you've ever heard of. So grab a pen, grab your program. We're going to write fast. We're going to move quickly today. Here's the first glorious thing I want to share. The first glorious thing is what Jesus did. And I'm thinking about the miracles that Jesus performed. A quick show of hands. How many of you have seen at least one episode of the streaming TV series about Jesus called The Chosen? 40% of the hands here today. Uh, the Chosen, it's insanely good. Um, what always gets me when I'm watching The Chosen is the moment when Jesus does a miracle. You know, people are interested in Jesus. He's talking. He's kind of interesting. But the, it's like the moment people realize that he just did something that no one else could do and the expressions on their faces, like that just emotionally wrecks me every single time. I think of when that um, disabled man is lying by the pool for years, he hasn't felt anything from the waist down. He, he sits there helpless, hopeless, until Jesus comes and says, get up. The guy looks at him like it's a sick joke. Jesus says it again. And, and the guy, just to prove Jesus is all talk, he punches himself in his numb, feelingless leg. <laughs> Except this time. <laughs> this time the words of Jesus restore the nerves that send the message to his mind. And you could see his face. <laughs> or when Peter, the fisherman, he hasn't started following Jesus yet and Jesus tells him to let down his nets for a catch. And Peter's like, what? We, we've been fishing all day. We're not going to catch anything. Jesus says, go. He throws the net in. He looks at Jesus. Told you. Favorite episode. Until <laughs> supernaturally the fish jump into the net and Peter looks at Jesus. And Jesus just smiles back. Like Those moments when dead people breathe when dark demons went running for their lives, when blind people opened their eyes for the first time, can you imagine if you had seen just one of those moments? Maybe my all-time favorite moment of The Chosen is when John the Baptist watched Jesus just drive out a demon with his mighty word. Do you remember what John does? He goes, yeah! <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like, demons so strong, no one can tame them. But Jesus speaks a word. He says, get and the demon goes. Why? Can you imagine being John and seeing that happen not once or twice, but dozens and dozens and dozens of times? You could not have said, yeah, I had a friend named Jesus. No, you would have said, wow. John said, after Jesus' first miracle in chapter 2 of his book, this, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his, say it with me, glory, and his disciples believed in him. They believed in him because he revealed that he was more than a good teacher. He was more than some man. He was the glorious son of God who had come all the way down from heaven. And I want to tell you this. He is the same God. When you read the Bible about these things that Jesus did, don't think, well, that was like pre-more powerful version of Jesus. But now, you know, science gets the last word. Now, Jesus didn't heal everyone in his day, and you and I both know he doesn't heal all of us today. 
But I want you to believe that this is the same God with the what power to make people with medical degrees very, very confused. Do not pray small prayers if you follow Jesus. Pray for him to fix it, for him to heal it, for him to change it. If a doctor says you only have X months to live, that might be true. Or Jesus might speak a single word and do to you what he did so often back then to reveal his glorious power, his divine nature. He can do it. What Jesus did and does is glorious. Number two. The second glorious thing is what Jesus said. In fact, if you had asked Jesus himself, he would rather have been famous for his words instead of his works. Uh, Kind of confusing when you first read the Bible. Jesus will do some miracle and he'll say to the person he's healed, hey, don't tell anyone about this. I love you. I want to make you better, but I don't want to get mobbed just so I can heal people's bodies. I want to speak words that can change people's eternities. In the book of Matthew, we find this. The crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching because he taught as one who had authority. So when Jesus preached, people didn't say, eh, what's for brunch? Okay, box checked. No, when he spoke, they said, what? I have a really good friend who uh, didn't grow up as a Christian, didn't grow up reading the, the Bible. But now that she is a Christian and she's following Jesus, she comes to church uh, most Sundays, she listens to his word, and she says, Pastor Mike, so often when I hear the words from the Bible, like, I either feel like I'm getting slapped or like I'm being hugged. But the words of Jesus are, are not mediocre to her. They're incredibly convicting or they're shockingly comforting. Have, have you experienced this too? You ever sat in church just like, uh... I was reading the words of Jesus the other day and he, he said this, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And I said, whoa. You know, when ugly stuff comes out of my mouth, what I want to say is that it's these stupid drivers who don't understand <laughs> how to drive on the road. I want to say it was just my kids, you know, p- pushing my buttons or was this thing that happened or he started. Jesus would say, wait, what? No, no, no. Mike, the only reason that came out of you is because it was already in you. You know, people get busted saying something really dumb or stupid. They like to defend themselves and say, I'm not that kind of person. Jesus would say, what? Where do you think that came from? It came out of your mouth because it was already in your heart. And so you can say, well, my ex pushed my buttons. I'm not really that kind of person. It was a stressful season at work. And Jesus would say, come on, let's be honest. It came out of you because it was within you. Impatience didn't magically appear in your mouth. It started in your heart. You are that kind of person. But then, Jesus, who just is savage about going after our sin, then he says the most loving, patient, 
compassionate, forgiving things. It, it, it's almost unbelievable. Have you, have you read the good news of the Bible? Um, just this week, I was, I was talking to this young woman who was facing like s- serious prison time, struggling with what she did. Can she be forgiven? And I said to her, do you know what the three biggest authors of the Bible have in common? Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. King David wrote 75 of the Psalms. Paul wrote half the books of the New Testament. You know what Moses, David, and Paul have in common? They all murdered someone. You know that? Moses murdered a man who was being assaulted. Or I should say a man who was assaulting his friend. He hid the body. David wanted this woman so badly, he slept with her, got her pregnant, had her husband murdered. Paul was killing Christians because he thought they were anti-God. And yet, God, not he forgives and loves people like that. The Bible says that Jesus was the friend of prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. We would expect Jesus to say, you know, God is watching, so be good for goodness sake. There's a nice list and a naughty list. And then Jesus just goes and he loves people on the naughty list. You say, who, who would love me at my worst? And people break up with me if I'm bad. They don't want to be friends with me because I'm a bad influence. But Jesus, in that moment, says, come to me. There's forgiveness for that. I can save you from that. Like He wraps these arms of unbelievable patience and love around us. And he gives us something we absolutely don't deserve. I just can't get used to the gospel. That Jesus would say such beautiful things to me and about me despite the sins that I've committed. And he says the same thing to you. Raising someone from the dead, whoa. Telling a sinner that they're saved as a free gift, wow. Jesus might not heal everybody in this room, but he can and wants to heal every soul. So lean in. Listen to his words. <laughs> Stop <laughs> zoning out in church because the message we have here is so insane. Wow, God would love a sinner just like me. And if all that weren't enough, then there's the third glorious thing about Jesus. Third glorious thing about Jesus is how he lived. Jesus had all the power, all the authority. He is the Son of God walking here on this planet and yet be stunned by this fact. He was absolutely good. Now, you might be used to that. Well, yeah, he's, he's Jesus. Of course, he's going to be nice. Of course, he's going to follow God. Of course, he's going to be obedient. But did you know in many ancient religions how their gods behaved? Now, they had the power to do what they wanted. Yeah, I think of the story of Zeus. You know Zeus, the Greek god? He was like the apex deity, the father and uh, king of all the other gods. But Zeus was a very, very bad, bad, selfish god. Some of the most famous Greek myths are about Zeus's badness. He, he was often inflamed with lust for human women and he would use his divine, almighty power to get what he wanted. There's just one story about this woman that he falls in lust with, but she's married. And she's not going to cheat on her husband. So what does Zeus do? Snaps his fingers and transforms his appearance into that of her husband. Walks through the door, hooks up with the woman he wants. She gets pregnant, has a baby named 
Hercules, that's where Hercules got his big power from, from Daddy Zeus. Zeus's wife hated him because he was so unfaithful, but he was the man with the authority and the power, and he used it for himself. Not Jesus. There was no documentary five years after Jesus got back to heaven about the girls of Galilee that Jesus had on the side. Uh, there was no expose, famous podcast about the scandalous way that Jesus took a little bit of money for his personal gain. He was God walking on earth. And there's no Bible story about anyone washing his feet. There is one about him washing the feet of his friends. He could have done anything he wanted. Walk on water, transport from here to there. Jesus never used his power for it. Has there ever been anyone who had that much power and was yet that selfless in giving to the world. You know, one of the reasons I, I trust Jesus so much, even when he asks me to do something that's hard, is because he has a long track record of only serving us. He's never trying to use people. He never wants you to read your Bible or pray more or give money or come to church so we can get something. He is not that kind of person. He's not Zeus. He's the son of God who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Hebrews chapter 4, we find this stunning verse. It says, We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he, Jesus, did not sin. How Jesus lived, sinless, perfect, and pure, wow, was glorious. Then, number four, there's how Jesus died. Now, we come to church, you see a cross, you might get used to it. It's a symbol of Christianity. You might have a cross necklace, I have a cross tattoo. Yeah, um, yeah, Jesus died on a cross. That's how it works. Whoa. <laughs> Stop and think about that for a second. I have a good friend who's in prison right now who uh, watches our church service every single week. And he tells me that when this camera over here is on and I'm preaching, what he sees behind me is the cross. And on the top of the cross, he sees that little sign. And the other day when I was visiting him, he said, Pastor Mike, what, what exactly does that mean? In, 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 I, I have no clue what that is, he said. Good, good question. The Bible says that when Jesus was put on the cross, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, put this sign above his head. It was written in multiple languages. One of the languages was Latin. And the sign said, Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judaorum, which is short for Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And Pilate was kind of right. Jesus was the king of the Jews, but not just that. He he should have said, Jesus Dominus Rex Mundi, Jesus, Lord, King of the world. But, but in either case, if you see that sign, you should say, what? A, a king is on a cross? Can you imagine like the British Prime Minister or the U.S. President sitting in an electric chair? No, 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 no. No, people with power and wealth escape such shameful endings. They hire lawyers and find legal loopholes. They go into exile or take their private jet to their private island somewhere safe. How would the king of the world, the king of the Jews, Jesus, end up on a cross? 
And there's only one glorious answer. If he loved you and he loved me so deeply and desperately, he would choose the worst ending so that you and I could have the best ending. I mean, if a dude who could raise the dead, walk on water, and make disabled people stand up and pick up the... He had a couple of nails would have been preschool miracles for Jesus. He could have ripped them out, laser beam from his eyes, every Roman soldier. Instead, he just sat there. God, with all the power coursing through his veins, he just sat there. Because deep within the heart of God was this desire to be reconciled to you. To take all the sin, all the mistakes, all the shame, so that you and God could be good again. God and sinners reconciled is what the life and death of Jesus is all about. And the people who witnessed it, the Roman soldiers who saw thousands of corpses on crosses, they knew something was different about Jesus. Mark 15 says this, When the centurion, the Roman soldier, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, obviously innocent, sacrificial, selfless, forgiving with his last breaths, when he saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Every time you see a manger, say, what? Every time you hear a miracle, say, whoa. And every time I pray that you see a cross, you shake your head and say, wow. Wow, a God who is so full of love that he would do that for me. Finally, number five. The fifth glorious thing is that Jesus rose. The simple fact. Not how he rose or exactly when he rose, but Jesus was medically dead and then he stopped being dead. Can you imagine if you went to Uncle Bob's funeral and you went up to say hi, Bob popped out of the casket? It was a normal, no, you'd say, what? Wow, but that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Just in case you're new to Christianity, we don't say that like Jesus kind of rose spiritually or emotionally in our hearts. We're saying that his brain waves and heartbeat and lungs took a few days off and then they got back to work. Jesus conquered death. He wanted to prove he really was the king of the world and the son of God. He wanted to prove that the sacrifice of the cross reconciled you to God and so he did what no one else could do. He predicted and then pulled off his own resurrection. The angel broke the news in the last chapter of Matthew The angel said to Jesus' friends, he's not here. He has risen just as he said. Man, Jesus. (laughs) Does it get any more glorious than Jesus? When I step back and think that, that my God would leave the perfection of heaven to come here, that he wouldn't be born in a palace, but in a like a just a barn. Surrounded by barnyard animals. When I think about a manger, a cross, an empty tomb, I have to step back even after 40 plus years and say, wow, there's no one in the world like Jesus. So I have some holiday homework for you. Um, This holiday season, this Christmas season, in order to just stay in this wow zone with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I want you to pretend that you were there. When you hear the story, when you read it to the kids at home, I want you to pick a character and just think what it must have been like. Imagine you're a shepherd watching sheep. 
what a third. They didn't even have TikTok to scroll. They just sat there and watched sheep until, boom, glory fills the skies. Angels, they'd never seen an angel before. And they hurried off. Can you imagine what it must have been like to step into the room and see just as they had been told, there he is. He looks just like one of us, but he is so much more. He's Christ, the Lord, the Savior of the world. Or maybe you moms are going to pretend that you're Mary. Her water breaks. And she goes through all the ups and downs, the agony and the ecstasy of childbirth. Except this time when she holds that little one in her arms, when she looks at that face, it's not just her son, it's the son of God. Or maybe you're going to be Joseph when the wise men show up. Probably happened when Jesus was about a year and a half, by the way. I mean, imagine you're sitting there, you're helping your toddler toddler around with his chunky little hands and feet when a couple of strange men in foreign robes walk through the door and lay chunks of gold at little Jesus' feet. Does he pick them up in his little toddler hands? And you're Joseph saying, it's true. It's true. My stepson is actually the one that the world is waiting to worship. You pick a person, put yourself in their shoes and just imagine, you'll start to feel maybe like John felt. I've heard this before, but I can't get used to it and I can't just be okay with it. I'm wowed in wonder and worship as I think about Jesus. If that doesn't work, maybe you could just go to the world's largest library. The Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. is currently the world's largest library. Get this fun fact. It has 532 miles of bookshelves. <laughs> 110 million different volumes. The world's largest library. And back in 1999, a CIA analyst named Peter Dixon wanted to see who was mentioned the most in the world's largest library. He did a, a complex computerized analysis of tens of millions of volumes. And here's what he discovered. In the world's largest library, there are 4,007 books about Napoleon, 2,742 books about George Washington, 2,446 books about the Buddha, 1,583 books about Gandhi. And when you add all of those books together and add all the books about Nietzsche and all the books about Freud and all the books about Mozart, and all the books about Beethoven, when you stack all those books on top of each other, they still do not reach the number of books written about the most famous person in the world's largest library. His name is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary, the son of God, the world's biggest library proclaims his bigness and his glory. And I hope and I pray that this Christmas, your heart does too. Let's pray. Jesus, you are such a big deal. And angels who haven't been forgiven for a single sin bow down in your presence and are wowed by your face. And we can't see yet what they see, but we can read these words and believe what John believed. Um, Help us to think about what you did and what you said, how you lived, how you died, and that you rose. And may we just be in awe of you. Help us to sing of your glory, to hallow your name, to magnify you in all that we do. This season, whatever gifts we give or get, help us remember they're just small glimpses of the greater gift and the glory that does not fade. Um, God, there's some people here who need to know that you speak truth because you are glorious. Let them trust you. 
Let them not follow their own hearts or guts or intuitions, but instead every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's some people here who have been dragging along that old sin for way too long. It keeps them up and makes them question where they stand with you. May they believe what you said and what you did, that you died for the forgiveness of sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Jesus, there are people who are dying in this room. They're, they're close. May they not be afraid because you conquered death. You got the last word and you, you knocked out our greatest enemy. And so God, help us to be people who live with humility and love, who live with faith instead of fear. Help us to remember we're not just religious or spiritual. We are connected to the most glorious, amazing person who has ever walked this planet. Thank you, Father, for giving us Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life. Help us to give everything to you in return. I pray this in your glorious name. And all God's people said, Amen.